Today on Sharp Scratch, you'll learn what to say to that friend who asks you to look at their rash. What protections do you have as a good Samaritan? And if, would you like to look at my hemorrhoids as an appropriate opener? You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 30. Should I give that casual consultation? This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we talk about all the things you want to know to be a good doctor, but that they might not teach you at medical school. I'm Anna, and I'm a final year medical student at King's, and I'm also the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, for another couple of months at least. And joining us today are our panel members, including someone who we haven't seen for a little while. Chidera, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi guys, um, I'm Chidera and I am currently in F2 working in Northwest London recently, well not too recently, but redeployed to ITU, um, which is why you probably haven't seen me or heard from me for a while. And how's that all going? Um, it's finally starting to calm down. Um, I'm seeing non-COVID ITU patients, which is novel and really exciting, so I'm really enjoying it, actually. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I know you're super busy. And we're also joined by our friend Oki. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Oki. I'm a soon-to-be fourth-year medical student at the University of Dundee, and I'm currently lazy and about at home, not doing very much at all. (laughs) Is it as warm in Dundee as it is down here in sunny Kent? Um, it's currently raining in Dundee, but, <laughs> <laughs> but Dundee is the sunniest city in Scotland. That's, that's apparently a proven fact, but it's currently <laughs> raining. Brilliant. Well, I'm also really pleased to welcome our expert guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name's John Smythe. Uh, I'm a general practitioner by training, but for the last three years, I've been the assistant director for the case examiner team which is based in fitness to practice at the general medical council so you're the person that we we all need to be uh worried about as we move into our careers well you say that <laughs> but actually uh, there's a very small chance of receiving a complaint that uh, ends up with the gmc i could go into that but that's not what you want to talk to me about <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time to to join us today and um yeah we're hoping you're going to be able to help us unpack the topic that we're talking about today which is how we can field kind of requests from friends and family um, to dole out medical advice. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has been on the receiving end of, you know, texts from friends and family asking for medical advice. It's actually started even before I went to medical school. So when I was in sixth form and it got around that I wanted to be a doctor and go to medical school, I did have someone ask me if I could look at their hemorrhoids. And I never quite worked out if they were joking or not. Um, I I declined, obviously. (laughs) Is it? Is it really? (laughs) I mean, the general area would lead me to... That's that's what I'm getting from that that suggestion. (laughs) And now I think now that I'm a little bit older and a bit further through medical school, I get a lot of pictures, like pictures on Facebook of like rashy children being like, what is this rash? I'm like, I don't know. Please don't ask me. (laughs) Um, And I'm always just a little bit like, 
I, I'm not really sure what to do in those situations. So Chidera and Oki, have you experienced this as well? Um, um 100%. <laughs> well, Chidera, you're an actual doctor now. So does it change? I think especially after I graduated and people were like, okay, so this is official. Like you're not just studying, but this is what you do now. They just, I'm just apparently everyone's personal GP. Um, <laughs> it's quite, it's quite hard because obviously... I mean, I'm only in F2 and particularly when I first started and I had like two weeks experience, people were asking me questions that I definitely didn't know the answers to. But yeah, it's even now it's still it's still ongoing. What about you, OK? Normally, people don't ask me anything. But since you gave like the title of this episode, (laughs) I've had four people in the last week ask me (laughs) and I was like, what's going on? Like, is the universe saying something? Like, I've had four different people ask me, oh, what's this rash? I've got this b- really bad headache. I think I've got shoulder impingement syndrome. Please tell me why <laughs> um, I wasn't able to give blood. It's like, I don't know the, the answers to these questions. I'm only, I've only done third year. I don't know anything. <laughs> and John, in, in your experience, you know, as, a, as, as an experienced doctor, is this something that, that you have found throughout your career as well? Absolutely. Uh, I think from the moment that you start at medical school, people assume that you know everything that there is to know about medicine. Of course, even when you've been in doctor for many years, like I have, um, you definitely don't know everything. In fact, the more you realise, the little you actually know of the overall breadth of information that you could know. Um, So yeah, uh, certainly as a medical student, definitely as a junior doctor, and um, even now that I'm not in clinical practice for the last few years, people still uh, want to ask me things that I don't know the answer to the question. So, so I thought we could talk um, a little bit about the kind of practicalities of it. And John, maybe you could help us um, figure out some of the kind of rules around like what you are and aren't allowed to do. Um, and then also I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about like how you actually communicate that to people. Like what is a nice way to say I'm really sorry, but I can't give you any medical advice, especially if they're being quite persistent. So, Jadera, you said that um, you've had more requests for like medical advice since you've become a junior doctor. But do you think it's more difficult for you to kind of say no and like fend off those um, those kind of requests? Like now you're actually qualified and like official. So it can be quite difficult, particularly if it's a friend who's saying, you know, I've, I've really struggled to get to my GP or I'm really not sure what to do next. And they're really worried. And from my point of view, I'm kind of thinking, is this serious or if it, is it not? And if I think that actually it's something that's a little bit concerning, it can be really hard to kind of hold back and try to give the advice over the phone. But I think one thing that my friends have kind of understood is that I'll just say I don't want to talk shop or I just I don't like work to like impact my personal life and that sometimes helps but it depends on how concerned they are about the specific symptom or whatever they're worried about Mm. and John in terms of like the actual guidance and and rules around this kind of thing um could you tell us a little bit about what our responsibilities are as as medical students and junior doctors yeah I think when you're talking about giving advice that's that's quite a an individual thing so in the context of somebody saying, I've got this spot or this rash or whatever, um, somebody asks you to look at something, you know, from a, a, a doctor's point of view, do you actually understand what you're looking at? Do you have exactly. the knowledge and experience to be able to advise somebody on whether that is something that's serious or significant or whether it's trivial? And if you give them uh, strong advice at that stage, 
will you potentially prevent them from seeking the appropriate help from the person who is experienced and knowledgeable in that area? So I think there's a there's a significant concern that by being drawn into giving informal advice or the kind of corridor consultation with a colleague, that you may end up misleading that person or potentially preventing them from seeking the appropriate help and advice from somebody who's better qualified than, than I am, for example. Mm. And has there been kind of many cases of like doctors getting in trouble for giving kind of this like unofficial like medical advice to family and friends? I wouldn't say that it's necessarily something that um, frequently ends up in an investigation but if you think about your own and I think it was touched on before it's sort of the the boundaries of personal relationships so for example if if um, you're asked about a particular thing and you give for example the wrong advice to somebody or advice that sometimes is uh, later contradicted by somebody else, then how will that affect your relationship with that person who you have a social or a, a family relationship with thereafter? And there's nothing harmful in in sort of signposting somebody to say, "Look, I'm not I'm not sure what this is. Um, I I feel that you'd probably better to speak to somebody else who's more qualified than me. I think you should speak to somebody else actually, uh, and giving that kind of signposting advice to people." rather than being drawn into committing to this isn't serious, don't bother, which mm-hmm. I think is um, is something that we ought to avoid where possible. I think it's actually slightly easier maybe for me than for someone like you, because I can kind of say, actually, I'm just an F2. I don't have that much experience, so maybe seek more help. I wonder if that's something that will get slightly more difficult the more senior I am. I think it's important to maintain that 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 mindset actually you know i I don't pretend to know everything as a, a experienced doctor, and I, I think any doctor who's experienced shouldn't get to the stage where they convince themselves that they do know everything about everything. I think that's quite dangerous, so recognizing that you have experience and knowledge in a particular area is, is good, but also recognizing the limitations of that knowledge. And also the lack of objectivity potentially in speaking to a friend who you might want to reassure about something or they might encourage you to reassure them about something that potentially isn't within your field of expertise. So uh, there's very much a boundary issue in these kind of informal requests for medical advice. I was doing a bit of research before this podcast um, and looking at the sort of like Good Samaritan um, protections and stuff that like medical professionals have um, to administer like life-saving treatment or whatever outside of the kind of clinical environment. Um, But it's quite complicated and um, I'm not sure I fully like grasped exactly what you're supposed to do in those situations. Um, So John, I wondered if that like, does the GMC have any guidance around um yeah these sort of like good samaritan things like if you come across someone who has had an out of hospital cardiac arrest or something like that there there is guidance available it's in the gmc's um main guidance good medical practice and it says that if you if essentially it says if you encounter an emergency whether it's in your clinical setting or in the community then you've got to take account of your own safety your competence and and um, the other options that might be available at that time in terms of other types of care but you are ethically bound to offer assistance in that situation so that doesn't necessarily mean to say that you are the only person that will offer help in that situation if it's in a community setting and obviously if there's somebody better qualified than you to assist then 
you would probably defer to that person to to provide the lead and the assistance. Um, but absolutely, there's no legal obligation for people to help, but certainly it's an expectation of doctors, and that's part of the reason why doctors are held in such high regard, is that we would naturally want to assist somebody who is in distress and offer ourselves forward um, with our, our knowledge and experience in that situation. There is a fear, I think, amongst doctors, and I, I count myself in amongst that, that you know you are out and about doing the things that you do in your normal daily life when you're not being a doctor. Um, and something catastrophic happens and you happen to be there. Um, of course, it's a, a stressful situation and we all would probably prefer it if somebody else would take the lead and somebody else might uh, offer assistance. But if you have knowledge and skills, then it, it's your moral obligation to, to step forward and offer assistance. Chidera mm. Noki, have you ever like come across someone who needed help outside of like hospital or know anyone who did? I can think yeah. of two scenarios. Ironically, the first one happened um, prior to my interview to getting into medical school. Um, luckily, I was with my dad, who's also a GP, but it was a man who actually had an epileptic seizure right in front of us on the street. Um, and um, he was by himself and no one else really knew how to deal with it. But my dad luckily was there and kind of put him in the recovery position and, you know, kept him safe till he came round. Um and then the second time where I was by myself, um, I was traveling to see a friend in Europe and there was a, a, pa a patient, but a person on the plane who was feeling really unwell. Um, and they were trying to decide whether or not um, he could continue with, on the flight. We hadn't taken off yet. Um, and they said, you know, is there a doctor here? Is there a doctor here? And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I graduated like a week ago. <laughs> um, and so I, I kind of didn't say anything for a while, but then no one else stood up. I was like, oh, Christ, it, it's like, it's just me. Fine. I was kind of like, OK, so what's the issue? Um, and they were saying basically that he's had like a really bad headache and he's really feverish. Um, should we, should, you know, is he well, blah, blah, blah. But I guess that was kind of an easier situation because they weren't expecting me to sort of administer anything. It was just more of like a, are you worried enough that we should continue? And to be honest, he looked a little bit meningitic. So I kind of said, I don't think, I don't think this is, I definitely don't think he should be on a plane. Um, I think he should. <laughs> get off um and go and see a doctor and you know worst comes to worst maybe it was an overreaction but at least you know he's fine and his family were happy with that and the staff are happy with that and an ambulance came to get him from the plane um so those are my two um experiences of out of hospital medicine but the second time definitely when they first asked for a doctor i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my stories aren't as cool as Tijera's <laughs> although I, I do have a friend who helped someone who collapsed just outside hospital which was fairly interesting but I wasn't there to see that but in general just that like work and stuff so um I think I said in a previous episode that um I used to run a summer camp um back home in London and I would never I, I hated telling people that I was a medical student because I didn't want them to I, I didn't want all the first aid issues to come to me basically because <laughs> um, <laughs> I had I had other there, there was there was a des, there was there was like another designated first aider there so I just thought it would be best if they if they dealt with it but yeah like, like one story that comes to mind is um a young person dislocated his shoulder but no one was sure he dislocated it and I just kind of looked at it as like 
I think that's pretty dislocated. I've only just finished <laughs> my second year, but I think that's this. I'm pretty 100% sure. I don't think it's supposed to look like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't, doesn't quite look even. Um, <laughs> and um, called NHS 111, and they just kind of like, kind of pied us off and put us to the side. I was like, please come straight away. Because <laughs> I'm worried that, you know, you know, he might not um, have circulation in a wee while um but we just decided to get a taxi and took him to um the main hospital rather than the out of hours center because mm. they wouldn't have been able to deal with a dislocated shoulder anyway so I, th- I think that that yeah that's like my one story of oh i needed to d- where i needed to be a good medical student and realize something was not quite right mm. and i think sometimes it's so like because I have a similar um, kind of background to you, Okay, I think, again, yeah, we talked about this before, like, I used to work at a summer camp, and I was, like, the super first aider, um, and I think sometimes it's just, like, you you might know that, like, they need extra assistance, but that extra assistance is only going to come from, like, 999, right, and you're there already, so you feel, like, quite a lot of pressure to, like, do something, but actually, you know that it's probably better to just wait, but you have to like try and keep everyone calm around you and like stop yeah. them from freaking out. And I wonder if that's like where the actual like skill is here for this like outside of hospital. It's just like keeping people calm and not necessarily actually doing anything. Because I think it's really easy to forget like how like scary it can be. Even if you, even if it is just like, you know, like for example, my I've got a four-year-old brother and like my mum sometimes sends me pictures of like rashes on his arms or whatever. And like, it can be really scary if you don't understand that, oh, that's just like a heat rash or whatever. So I wonder if that's like kind of more where the, like, where you can actually be helpful as like a a junior. But I think it's really tricky, isn't it? Because my response would always be just like, I just like go and go and see your doctor. If you're worried about something, you should go and see your doctor about it. But I don't know if that's like, the most appropriate way to to communicate that i don't know what kind of like if, has, has any of you got any like stock phrases or stocks are kind of like communication skills that you would use to like convince <laughs> someone to get, like go just go to a real doctor um, no i mean chidera you're a just real doctor john you're a real just doctor. about just about a real doctor 50 pounds per consultation can I intervene at that point and say, don't don't offer to charge them, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a joke. I, I, I know you're only joking. <laughs> <laughs> Oki's career is just flat before it. <laughs> Oki's like, I haven't even got a number yet and they're already going to take it away. <laughs> and it's disappearing right before the I, I think it, it comes back to, to, to what I was saying earlier on. It, you know, it, There's nothing harmful in signposting people to a more appropriate person to be objectively assessing that rash or, or symptom. Um, so, you know, I, I would encourage you to say, go and see your GP or, or perhaps you ought to speak to um, the nurse practitioner or, or, or whatever else uh, in that situation rather than committing yourself. Uh, and it's not to say you're trying to be unhelpful. It's just recognising that you're not the best person in that situation always to advise. If I can talk about Good Samaritan Acts, which we, we kind of went on to for a little while and share an experience of mine, if that's okay. I, I was on a transatlantic flight some years ago now. I'd been seeing my brother who lives in the States and uh, was travelling back with my mum. And uh, about 45 minutes to an hour into the flight, the the dreaded call goes over the uh, intercom <laughs> to say, is there a doctor on the flight? 
And of course, my mother elbowed me in the ribs and said, go on, go on. Not that I wouldn't have volunteered anyway, of course. Um, and of course, you know, there is that fear of what am I going to get into here? What, what's actually going on? And as it turns out, it was um, a lady who uh, was feeling particularly unwell with a fever and a, a rash on her leg and that was possibly a, a sort of an ascending infection in her leg. And, you know, in that situation, you sort of think, well, nobody else is here to offer assistance. I, I feel obliged to step forward and help in that situation. But of course, once you've done that, you then think, well, I haven't got any kit. I don't really know exactly what's going to transpire. So I asked the, the uh, airline crew to provide what kit they had, and they had the world's cheapest stethoscope, a blood pressure cuff from the 1960s, and <laughs> um, they said, we've got oxygen if you need it, and I think there was a thermometer as well. Um, but there wasn't a lot else at that time. And so you're then left with a, a situation in which you do your basic assessment. What I would say in that situation is, you know, you need to be mindful of the fact that you, you're in an unfamiliar environment, you have taken responsibility, so you need to make a record of what you do and, and your assessments that you make at that time. Certainly, it was the longest flight I've ever been on, even though it was only six hours or so. Just because I didn't sleep, I had to go back and check on the patient during the flight multiple times. Unfortunately, she, she was absolutely fine during the flight. But the most alarming thing from my memory was having done my basic assessment using the ancient stethoscope and blood pressure cuff uh, and thermometer. Uh, they said, so, doctor, do you think we should um, turn back and land again at um, JFK or do you think we need to carry on? Because the next possible stopping point is three hours time in Reykjavik. And that responsibility was is suddenly on me. And, and, and you know, that's fine. The patient didn't seem particularly unwell. I was fairly confident that that was fine. But of course, it's a big responsibility to take on at that time. There's some reassurance in the fact that a lot of the defence organisations will provide worldwide cover for Good Samaritan Acts for Doctors. And I would definitely encourage all of you to think about the indemnity cover that you get to cover you for actions both in work and, and obviously outside of work as well. So it's definitely worth um, taking that on board. As it turned out, the patient was absolutely fine. We landed in Manchester. A uh, patient was um, taken off the plane and uh, they offered me um, a bottle of champagne for my trouble. I was expecting a first-class <laughs> upgrade, but it never materialised. Um, but, um, you know, it's an obligation, isn't it? Mm. Okay, cool. So it sounds like we kind of have, like, some ideas about what we might do if we came across someone who needed, like, medical help that was within you know our kind of scope of practice in terms of feeling confident about doing like a basic a to e assessment and it's good to know that there's like protections in place for people who decide to you know step in and do those sort of good samaritan acts what i also thought um we might talk about a little bit is doctors and medical students treating each other in work and outside of work so i remember quite clearly you know how there was kind of a spate a few years ago of like junior doctor tv programs like i think there's one that was like called like um your life in my hands and it was oh always God. like <laughs> do, do you remember those do, there was a lot them. of them They're yeah amazing. <laughs> yeah but there was one i remember really quick clearly where um I think she she was like an F1 or an F2 and she got one of her colleagues to like remove like a small cyst from her head and I remember thinking at the time like is this okay like can you just go around like doing procedures on each other and yeah John I wondered if um, <laughs> the GMC says anything about that. I mean it, it, it again comes to the 
the crux of, of objectivity, doesn't it? If you're working with somebody and you have a professional relationship with them, uh, are you the right person to provide objective care to that person in, in a particular situation? Plus, which do you have the right skills to be able to provide the treatment that they might be asking for? And, uh, you know, have you got the appropriate kits, etc., etc.? Surely it's better that, that all doctors can also be patients. They should be seeking uh, care through the appropriate channels. What happens if something goes wrong in that situation? You provide the wrong treatment or advice. Obviously, it's it's a, a minefield for potential problems thereafter. You know, do any of us actually have the appropriate equipment to be able to treat somebody? Uh, certainly when it comes to prescribing, it's definitely uh, not recommended to prescribe to, to colleagues in informal situations unless it's an absolute emergency and there's no one else available to do that. So when you say not recommended again is that like a guideline is that a legal obligation so it, it, in the guidance um, that the gmc produces it does say that um, you should avoid providing care to anybody with whom you're in a close personal relationship in terms of colleagues you could stretch the definition perhaps and say that that might be the case in in respect of a colleague but it's also you know when would you be treating this patient would you be treating them during work time and where would you be treating them if not in work time? Would it be in their own home, in your own home? It just doesn't sound like a suitable environment for that kind of uh, treatment to be provided. And if you did provide treatment in an emergency, for example, obviously you need to communicate that treatment very clearly to the person who would regularly provide care to that patient, whether it be the general practitioner or any other person involved in their care. That's kind of been um, the reason that I hesitate when it comes to not the only reason, but like a big reason that I would hesitate when it comes to treating colleagues is because, as you were saying, um, for example, when you're working with a patient that you've just met and you're looking at their past medical history, a lot of that will come through like letters from appointments, letters from maybe um, other um, times that they've been admitted to hospital or from communication from the GP. The issue with the sort of informal friends and family approach is that that never gets documented or like registered anywhere. So... I guess if it's something very small, I can see why people may be less worried about it. But my concern would always be that actually, if it's something kind of serious and you begin management for that, how does it get followed up or, you know, included in their formal past medical history? It's a very good point, actually. And obviously, you, you won't know what previous treatment they've been, they've been provided, what other medications they might be taking. You haven't got access to the records and therefore you may end up doing harm when you're intending to do good. You know, you're not that person's registered doctor why is your colleague not seeking advice through the appropriate channels that that's absolutely the right thing to do even if there is a temptation for doctors to sometimes um you know seek advice from colleagues that there are a lot of dangers involved Mm, yeah and I think it's it's sometimes it's one of those things isn't it like I know as a student it's like oh I haven't got time to go to the GP it seems like it's quite minor like maybe I could just like show it to someone on placement or you know, this is this is not something I've personally done, but like I can, you can see where the like thought process would come from, like particularly no, if you're busy. Colleagues. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, the hours that we work are also the hours that the GP practice are open. So I can see why people may say, you know, it's just a repeat prescription. Um, I don't have time to go to the GP because I'm literally working the hours that they're open. Can you just write it for me? So I can, can I can understand where those pressures come from on both sides, to be honest. 
I think for the reasons that you've already said about um, not being aware of the patient's full history, uh, and you know, just to make the point, doctors are entitled to seek medical treatment in the same way as any other patient is. So if you have to take time off from work to go and seek medical attention, then that's your right to do so. And your employers should be uh, encouraging you to do that kind of thing. Um, lots of GP surgeries have extended hours now, so it may be possible to find an appointment at a particular time. Um, but absolutely don't, don't be led into prescribing for colleagues, um, even uh, trying to be helpful. Um, uh, it's not really something that's appropriate unless it's an absolutely urgent situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to talk um, a little bit more about um, how you might talk to someone who you know, who you think has got, you know, potentially a serious medical problem. Um, but that'll be right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Okay, back to the show. So this is like slightly unusually serious um, for me on Sharp Scratch because I usually like to, you know, keep the podcast lighthearted. But it's something that personally in this kind of area of like treating your family and friends that I'm quite worried about and um, just based on like some stories that I've heard from like other medical students and junior doctors so like a hypothetical situation if you say like one of your loved ones like you're really concerned that they've got like some serious pathology like right but they won't like either they haven't noticed or they don't want to go to the doctor where does your responsibility to kind of say like like sit them down and say like look I really think you need to to go to the doctor I don't know I just like worry that I'll be in that situation in the future um I would say like the situation I find myself in with in terms of like family and stuff is more like adherence to medication rather than like diagnosing some serious condition because I've got like older family members who like have high blood pressure and stuff and some of them take their um, medication once every other day. And I sort of <laughs> just go like, is that what your GP told you to do? Um, very politely. It's like, oh, maybe you should do what your GP said and take your medication every day. Like, oh, no, but like, you know, like, please take it every day. So that that's my sort of experience with that sort of situation. I've, I've never really had any things super serious well I, I guess that is quite serious but I've, I've never had anything that 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 I would say was imminently life-threatening I think um, the dilemma is 
the, the, the boundary between sort of taking responsibility for a competent adult who can make their own bad decisions if they want to and your sort of responsibility as a doctor to uh, try and encourage them to seek the right care. And the boundary issue comes in again. So you can't make somebody do something that they choose not to do if they're competent. On the other hand, you can, with your medical knowledge, explain why the advice they'd be given in, in Oki's situation is, is good advice to take the medication on a daily basis and not when they think it's a good idea to take it themselves. Um, because that's the way the medication works, maybe explaining a little bit more why it does need to be taken every single day as opposed to every other day, and the fact that it'd be less effective if you don't take it, and the dangers of not taking the medication regularly, and all of the, those kinds of things. And in your situation, Anna, obviously, if you've got somebody you're very worried about, whether it's a friend or a family member or anybody else, all you can really do is explain why you're worried and encourage them to seek advice from the appropriate individual uh, which usually the first point of call would be the general practitioner. I'm worried about you because of this. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what it is. I'm worried it might be something, you know, that you need to get treatment for or something that might need to be, to be take, taken more seriously. So I think you should see this person. Uh, but it's advice. It's not a command. And you can't make people do the things that you might want them and encourage them to do. Yeah, I think it just worries me. Like, I, I had this story from a, a friend of mine who's a doctor and basically her one of her friends had like rung her up and said that her partner was feeling really unwell and like they had all these symptoms and it really sounded like they had like leukemia right and he was really unwell and she didn't know what to do because she didn't want to sort of come out and be like okay I think you know your partner has cancer but then they were sort of reluctant to like go and seek help because they I don't think they really understood like the seriousness of the situation and I think I just worry like you don't want to just like sit in someone's kitchen who you know and be like yeah I think you've got like a serious like something seriously wrong with you I guess it's more a communication thing than in terms of like yeah and it's it's in some ways it's no different to when you start to talk to a patient uh, that you see in your uh, professional role um, you know you start with sort of trying to explain uh, why you're concerned about something and then maybe sort of we all use euphemisms initially and then we might get to a more direct kind of way of talking to people about what you think at a later stage but I think it's slightly different with family and friends because you don't want to upset them which is comes back to what we were saying before about the objectivity of that consultation um, you're not objective you are emotionally involved with that person in some way so it's far better to signpost them and do your best to try and explain why you're concerned. Most family members will take that advice, um, you know, and, and go and seek the appropriate advice. And all you can do is to try and encourage your opening gambit isn't going to be, I think you've got cancer. Uh, hopefully not anyway. Um, but you might sort of explain why you were concerned and the types of things that you're concerned about rather than saying it's one particular thing and that that's what you were most concerned about. I think the other interesting thing about this whole issue around like treating people outside of work is is like just this blurring of boundaries because I think we've spoken a little bit on the podcast um, in previous episodes about how like essentially being in the medical profession like pervades every almost every aspect of your life right and actually um, Dom our producer was saying just before we started recording that like it this must happen in like lots of professions we were talking about like plumbing and stuff like people will come and like ask you to kind of look at their broken toilet or whatever if you're if you're a plumber by trade but I think it just it just feels slightly different when it's medical stuff because you feel like the stakes are like 
feel really high and it's like people's health and I just think it's interesting how we still have these all these professional obligations like outside of actually being clocked in and like being at work it worries me sometimes because I think about I, I like to go to like big concerts right and I sometimes think like oh my god what would happen if like someone just like dropped down over there and like no one else could help them <laughs> that's happened to me before now uh, at a gig I don't want to sound like <laughs> everywhere I go there's some kind of disaster <laughs> yeah. um but it, you know, it's a similar situation. I guess you put yourself forward to assist because you you might be able to offer some assistance in in the concert situation where that's happened to me. Lots of other people put themselves forward as well. There were nursing staff and others in the crowd who it was basically somebody who'd fainted because of the heat and uh, probably a little bit too much alcohol at the time as well. But um, it wasn't anything dangerous. But you know, uh, I, I, it to your fear about sort of when to put yourself forward and how it, it might affect all of your life. These things don't happen very often to individuals, uh, despite what I've said so far about examples that I can quote you. And when you do, you know, you, you when you do get involved in those situations, all you can do is do your best in that situation, using your knowledge and experience and recognising the limitations of that, deferring to anybody else who might be there who's better placed to provide, uh, provide assistance and making sure you seek appropriate help. So... You know, just because you happen to be a doctor doesn't mean you don't call the ambulance. Uh, just because you happen to be a doctor doesn't mean that you have to manage the situation if somebody else is better qualified to manage whatever the issue is that arises at the time. I think um, one thing I would, I'd like to emphasise is sort of the perils of prescribing for family and friends and colleagues. I mean, we've sort of touched on this broadly, but but not specifically. And I think, you know, there is a specific guidance available from the GMC about um, prescribing uh, to persons with whom you have a close personal relationship. It's absolutely not the right thing to do in most situations. In an emergency situation, it might be something that's allowable. Doctors are, are meant to apply the guidance and, and use their professional judgment to to apply the guidance to a particular situation but generally speaking I think people should avoid prescribing to to close friends and relatives and certainly very strongly encourage people to avoid prescribing for themselves that is something that gets people into difficulty particularly when it comes to particular types of drugs that can be misused mm. you know it, it it's very much less common now than it used to be that people will self-prescribe but it's it's quite hard to justify doing that, I think, these days. And certainly, you know, given the availability of telephone advice from your GP, who might be able to prescribe something for you if it's absolutely necessary, um, you know, we should all avoid that wherever possible. I kind of view it all as like a slippery slope. And I just think even if you started off prescribing literally like some paracetamol for a friend, it's just going to sp- like spiral you know and I think that's why even with most of my friends I'm I'm quite strict on the boundaries and maybe you'll just playfully say you know I don't like to talk about work outside of work if you're really worried maybe see your GP because I can just see in my head how each of these scenarios would just spiral into you literally becoming like your friendship group's official doctor who is prescribing and doing consultations on your free time yeah um, it doesn't sound very fun for you if you're like your group's no. doctor. Like that—that's not a friendship anymore. It's just, it just sounds kind of awful to me. I—I I would absolutely hate that. Exactly. 
you, I think you're right to be cautious, and, and certainly if if you prescribe for somebody once, then they might have an expectation that you would prescribe again, and because you've done it once, you might feel obliged or, or more under pressure to do it a, a, a second time. And it's not just about drugs that can be misused, it's about antibiotics, about all the other things that we've talked about already about does the person who's responsible for their care know that this medication has been given? Do you fully understand what other medications they might be taking? You're not given the full picture often by colleagues and friends. So I think it's really important to, that that you avoid uh, prescribing to yourself or to, to other persons mm. who you're not the, the treating doctor unless it's an absolutely urgent situation. Okay, cool. So... My idea for this episode was really quite selfish because um, I've chosen a topic that I personally have been, uh, I've always worried about it, um, but I think as I get closer to graduation and like being an actual doctor, like Chidera and John, um, (laughs) I've become increasingly um, concerned about it and about how, yeah, how you just like marry up like your professional and personal life. But I think Chidera, I hearing about your experiences has been really useful and just like how you kind of like fend those questions off so thank you so much for um, joining us to talk about this today John did you have any final thoughts for the panel and for our listeners I think just to provide some reassurance um, dealing with people in emergency situations doesn't arise um, very often at all for individuals Um, when you do people worry about um, legal ramifications of getting involved that's extremely rare and as I said earlier on many of the defence organisations will provide cover for Good Samaritan Acts anyway there is some law in in England and Wales that protects people who get involved in um, emergency situations in terms of acting for the greater good and helping in an emergency situation in a kind of heroic status as they call it so there's no need to be overly worried about getting involved as long as you follow the the general principles of acting within your competence and uh, seeking to do good in that situation. And I think um, the final point would be, I think all doctors have faced these dilemmas for for many, many decades and probably before my time as a doctor for sure. It's not easy to refuse to prescribe or to, to give treatment or to give really strong advice to people and there may be an initial discomfort about deferring to others and signposting to somebody else who can help. But I think if you do that and make those boundaries clear early on with your friendship group or your family group, they just accept that my family certainly, I mean, they probably don't like me for it, but they, they certainly <laughs> accepted it. And um, and it's the right thing to do. You know, it, it, I, I can't be objective about my uh, loved ones in the same way that I can about patients that I see. It doesn't mean I don't care about the patients that I uh, see. It just means that you have a different kind of relationship with those people. And that's one of the skills of being a doctor is, is to maintain that sort of empathy, but but equally having a certain distance from an emotional attachment to the individual. Yeah, definitely. And Oki, what's your main uh, takeaway been from today's conversation? Um, don't charge people. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on the list. Uh, <laughs> I would say it's, I, I would say it's like the boundary setting thing. I feel like the last couple of years, one of my mottos has been, people will treat you the way you let them treat you. Mm-hmm. So, so I think pe- people know who you are and what sorts of things you'd accept and what sort and what sorts of things you're comfortable with. And if you make it clear from the get-go that oh, I'm not comfortable with giving medical advice, I'm not comfortable with, with prescribing, then they won't come to you. They'll 
probably go to someone else who they think that they would get a positive response from. Mm. So or even you, the, even their GP, hopefully, okay. Hopefully their GP. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully their GP. But is it, I'm just kind of kind of like thinking from a selfish perspective, in the sense that I'm doing what I feel comfortable with doing, and I'm not endangering you in any way, shape, or form. And I'm encouraging you to go to your GP. And even if you don't go to your GP, I'm still making sure I'm doing the right thing. What about you, Chidera? It's been a while since you've been on Sharp Scratch. Have you missed doing a little end of episode summary? I know, I have missed it. I think my main takeaway is actually from um, John's story on the plane. And I think that I've always had a really big fear of out of hospital um, emergencies because in my head, I'm th- I feel like I'm limited in what I can do. But actually, even what you said about being on the campsite, um, I think if you kind of approach it with the mindset of, you know, I don't have an entire team, an ops machine, a defibrillator, et cetera, et cetera, to hand, and I'll just do the best that I can, knowing as well that I should have some indemnity because I'm trying to be a good Samaritan, that makes me feel not less scared because it will always be scary, but I think will hopefully let me leave the situation feeling like, well, I did what I could do in that scenario, you know? Yeah, and I think of a lot of it is like, I guess the kind of final point for me would be like making sure that you can look back on the way you've interacted with someone and think, yeah, I did, like, I did myself a good service there. Like, I didn't do anything that I don't feel comfortable with. And I guess that's. It's kind of a good motto for life, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's all from us on Sharp Scratch today. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks time, you'll get our next episode straight to your phone. While you wait for the next episode, check us out on social media. We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag SharpScratch. We'd love to hear ideas for other topics that we could cover. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your pods, as it helps other students find the show. Until next time, it's goodbye from all of us. Bye! Bye. (laughs)